Hello? Yo. Ian? Yo, I'm an idiot. I had to mute on. <laughs> no problem. Welcome to the Dead Format. My name is Ian McEwen, and I'm joined tonight by my co-host, the standard bearer of the podcast, Thomas Smiley, and we're here to talk about Legacy. I feel dirty that I played standard. It was it was a rough weekend. Yeah, well, that's why you're the standard bearer, right? Because you're the one who's able to bear it. Uh, I couldn't. I I dropped really early and decided that it wasn't really worth my time. Uh, I wasn't enjoying it. We're so fortunate to be in an area where legacy is so strong that that can be our format that we choose to play all the time. Standard, there's just there's some problems with the format when you try to compare it to to better better formats, at least better formats in my opinion. Yeah, I heard something about you playing against uh, an 11 year old who wasn't named Kiefer. Oh man. Okay, so when I when I sort of get into what happened, I'll talk about <laughs> it. Right. But this, yeah, oh, it was it was rough. It was rough. Sounds good, man. So before we get into it, I just want to I guess give a shout out to our friend uh, MZ Frost Topher Stitson for top eighting this GP. Yeah, Topher. I I'm not like for, like friends with him. I think that I've spoke to him once. One of the things that I definitely need to do a better job of is actually, like, talking to people at <laughs> events. Usually between rounds, I'm, like, skulking in the corner or uh, not skulking if I won, but really just, like, not talking with people that I didn't go to the tournament with. Yeah. And every time I've actually interacted with Topher, it's been great, but I, I need to get better at networking and reaching out to people and talking to people while I'm at, while I'm at tournaments. But every time I've interacted with Topher, he's been awesome. Yeah, every time I've interacted with him, he's kicked my ass with Miracles, which is uh, pretty brutal. But that whole crew, the those guys that come down from Maine for all the legacy events and all the big events, uh, they're awesome. So congratulations to Topher. Represent. And it was pretty funny. Like I wasn't playing in this tournament, but at one point when I saw Topher was doing well, I checked the standings. It was around like round 11 or so. And the top, like, 20 players, the X2s are better. There were so many legacy names. Like, I saw, like, Jarvis Yu was up there, Noah Walker, uh, you know, Topher, Jonathan Zuchanek. Uh It was like looking at a legacy tournament. It was. Obviously, skilled Magic players are skilled Magic players. And if you practice a format enough, you can consistently put up results. And those are just awesome players, period, sure. whatever, whatever format. But it, it definitely seemed like a it definitely seemed like a group of players that could have been taken straight out of a legacy tournament. Yeah, no doubt. So what was your experience in the uh, Grand Prix? Uh standard is shit. Like it's uh compared to a format where you can play cards that can smooth out your draws, 
playing standard is just such shit. And I, I definitely chose a bad deck to play for the event, given that I'm complaining about fixing, because I could have played some sort of three-color or two-color control deck with a lot of cycling lands that played a higher land count, and you could cycle to sort of thin it out. Um, but I chose to play Stompy, and I did a little bit of testing because of Mana Traders. I was able to get a deck online and put some work in, and I realized that I wanted a little bit more interaction in game one, and the Stompy deck had, like, two commit memory and a spell pierce, and that was pretty much it. So I actually had a list that used Syncopate fairly well because all of the important matchups in Standard, when they're playing against green, it's literally just trying to curve out. And hitting black reds four and five drops and hitting Teferi or a fog after your opponent has played um, a Teferi and untapped. Syncopate was awesome in my testing, like almost as good as Mana Leak because everybody is just tapping out. And I went three and three. I'll spare you the details, but round one, I played round one of a Grand Prix for the first time in like five years. Because I had a kid, and I didn't play Magic for a while, so I missed buys by 15 Planeswalker points, which is <laughs> kind of sad. Um, but I played against Black Red in round one, kept a three-lander and a four-lander, respectively, respectively, and then just completely flooded out. Like, I ended up with seven and eight lands in each of those games. Uh, no, Nothing that I could do to my opponent curving out and uh, just lost 0-2 in round one. So I'm feeling kind of down because I, like, am, I'm 0-1 in the Grand Prix, and that hasn't happened in a really long time. And I sit down, not not across from the 11-year-old opponent, but next to. So I sit down for my round two. This kid comes and sits next to me. Probably 11. He might be 13 or 14. I might be, I might be exaggerating. But he sits down. And his opponent, like, shakes his hand, and the kid goes, hi, I'm Reed. And then I turn to him, and I'm like, oh, you're Reed? And this this kid looks me square in the face, not joking around at all, and goes, oh, no, 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 I'm not Reed Duke. Like, <laughs> oh, oh, really? You, this 11-year-old kid who's sitting next to me, is not Reed Duke. And the reason why I asked him, oh, you're Reed, is because I was supposed to be playing Reed, and I was like, are you sure you're sitting in the right chair? And then he looked he looked at the numbers and then quickly went around the table. And I'm like, oh, man, this kid is going to catch a beating. We're 0-1 we're in a Grand Prix. He doesn't even know where he's sitting, and I'm playing against him. So in my head, I'm just like, this, this, is, why, this is why I need my buys back. So... We sit down for the match, and he wins the die roll. He's on the play. Plays a turn two Constrictor that I can't answer. Jade Light Ranger that he makes a 6-5. Jade Light Ranger that he makes a 6-5. Verderous Gearhook. So by turn five, he has, like, fucking shit tons of power in play, and he just smashes my face. So round one, I flood, flood, lose both games. Round two game one, I just get my ass handed to me. Like, it wasn't even close. I got shit-stomped by an 11-year-old who had to inform me that he was not Reed Duke. So at this point, I'm just saying, fuck standard. And I end up winning two games in game two and game three, literally just on the back of being able to syncopate 
because he he let me untap and he didn't main phase some removal that he probably should have. But I'm lucky to be one and one, like very lucky. I win my round three, so I'm two and one, and I'm actually considering dropping. I'm like, you know what? This is this just isn't going to go better for me throughout the course of the day. I'm very fortunate to be two and one, and I was considering going home. Uh, and I played against one of my old friends who I used to play with a lot, John Morowski. He was actually the person on the game podcast that got name dropped because he was the one that spoiled Jerry's Grixis deck in Legacy. Oh, right. And I don't hit my third land drop in either game one or game two. So both of my losses are to Flood and Screw. I consider dropping again, but I decide to play and I win my round. What is it? Round five. And I consider dropping again. And then I lose my round six to not hitting my second land drop in game one off of some mulligans. And I'm done with standard. Yeah, that sounds like about par for the course, as I understand it. I do actually kind of regret not playing, though, because as it turned out, when I showed up around noon on Saturday, the Grand Prix, the overall size of the Grand Prix, looked like a small open to me. There were only, I think, 704 was the official number of players. And that's really inviting in terms of, you know, top eighting or whatever. That's like a manageable number. I mean, you still have to go X and three, right? Like, even though it's a manageable number, you still have to go 12 and three in a format where unless you are playing certain decks, there's not a lot of way to reduce variance. So, yes, it would have been a better Grand Prix to play in numbers wise. But from somebody who's used to playing a lot of Legacy Standard is just trash. Yeah, no, I definitely see that. It was just really pretty shocking for me showing up. So I showed up not to play in the Grand Prix, not to play in the side events. I actually just wanted to sell off some stuff. I decided to uh, get rid of my Legacy foils because I have, like, you know, normal versions of the cards and just get into some power, really. So the vendor situation I thought was pretty great. I had a good time doing that. Got to see you uh, and some other players who were sticking it out in the main event. And... uh, not playing any side events and you know we kind of talked about this on our last episode how the the de facto side events of these grand prix are these three round things that pay out the prize tickets and how we're kind of disinterested in these events and i just kind of wanted to contrast those with the uh the scg tour side events like the primary side events that they have the sunday classics and those also pay out like prize wall tickets but ultimately i find that i really enjoy playing in the sunday classics because what I care about in these side events isn't the value of the tor- of the uh, the little tournament, but just playing an event in an event that feels like it matters, and like playing in the later rounds of a tournament against top competition, or like seeing lists get published and being able to analyze the tournament results, like that's what I think is really important, you know, about a tournament. And I've seen, you know, you're not in the leaving a legacy Facebook group anymore, but I've seen a lot of arguments over the past two days about like oh you know if you play in the double up event you can get two boxes of Amonkhet if you if you 3-0 and ultimately you know to me that just seems like a tremendous waste of time like I don't want those boxes to begin with you know like that's not why I'm playing magic at this point in my life and I really feel like you know the GPs are kind of missing that these days and it felt like when I was there like I had no reason to be there 
Yeah, I know last week I had made a comment about how I can't wait to play, or I was deciding whether or not I was going to play in the main event or the bigger legacy side event. And you were like, just double check that there is a bigger legacy event. Because what I read was what they are doing next week in Richmond, which is actually good for all of the formats that they are hosting this for. They're having larger events like a classic that they're calling format championships. There are PTQs, standard PTQs for modern and standard and legacy that they are running. And it's a lot more events that matter. Providence was terrible. And there were a lot of reasons why it was terrible, but running split Grand Prix in the same country is obviously going to split the player base. People are only going to fly to one, and L.A. ended up being the one that a lot more people went to. In addition, I had and witnessed a whole bunch of people have a terrible, terrible time the morning of the event trying to find cards. Because you said it was great for the, the, the what you were looking for, the vendors had. You had a great experience trading in cards and buying cards, but none of the vendors brought standard cards. <laughs> none of them to a standard Grand Prix. It was so awesome. They they had to go to TJ's and gaming, etc. on Friday night to buy sleeves to bring to the event because none of the vendors brought sleeves either. It was a shit show. Moose Loot, who is a great vendor, was the only one that was telling people to look through their bulk boxes for standard cards. So they had four five-row boxes that just had random unsorted cards in. (laughs) So Saturday morning, there's a group of like 15 rotating people looking for the one card they need spending like 20 minutes looking through all these boxes and then just walking away (laughs) for an event that charged $70 for it to be that terrible. This is the first Grand Prix that I went to that I was like, that was trash. It was absolute garbage and it wasn't the judge's fault and it wasn't the player's fault, but the coordination between the TO and the vendors And the lack of everything for the event was just so terrible to witness. Dude, it was it was pretty embarrassing, honestly, like just the size of the event and, you know, them not having standard cards or anything. I listened to like the uh, the Cartel Aristocrats podcast last week, and I guess the vendors, I don't know what the Grand Prix was the weekend before. It might have been like Orlando. Orlando. Yeah. So. The, they didn't have standard cards either, the vendors at that Grand Prix. And I guess Channel Fireball Events sent out a message during the week this week to the vendors, like, you guys need to bring standard cards from now on. And the vendors were kind of like, dude, it's not worth our time. Like, we're going to have to bring, like, these 5Ks to, you know, potentially sell these cards for these small margins. And actually at Providence, the vendors weren't even buying my standard cards from me. It's like they just don't even want to transact with these anymore. And I thought that was super interesting and really not not very healthy for the ecosystem. 
but you know kind of indicative of where we are in the northeast and maybe this is you know also on the eastern seaboard if it's also an orlando thing where there's just more eternal players than there are standard players yeah but for channel fireball to be the tournament organizers and channel fireball not be able not being able to supply standard cards is a fucking joke yeah, but that that's not what it there's CFB events and there's CFB retail. They're like they're two different entities and CFB retail could only be in one spot at one time. They were obviously in LA because that's like a little drive for them. Okay. So I guess they they can split their tournament staff, but they can't split their vending staff. Yeah, and I guess that's the problem with these two USGPs, right? Yeah, it it definitely seemed like Channel Fireball did not put a lot into providence yeah absolutely it it was it was fucking terrible uh this is kind of just a nitpick going back to something you said but uh i think the format championships are only for the off formats right like uh like brawl and commander well i thought that they were also doing modern and popper so basically they took all of the formats that there weren't grand prix for so there's no standard there's no legacy, but I thought that there was Brawl, Popper, Modern, and maybe Commander, but I'm not sure. I'm seeing Commander in Old School, actually, instead of Modern. Okay. But yeah, it's like, you know, the same difference. You have a PTQ, so, you know, you have something to do on those other days. And back when we were out in Seattle, back in like April or whatever that was... That was kind of the issue that Jerry and I had was we couldn't play in the PTQ because we had a flight late on Sunday. So we were like, oh, you know, let's just play in a legacy event. And there just there wasn't any legacy event worth playing that day. So, you know, that's kind of I think where we're at with these Grand Prix is if there isn't a PTQ going on or a main event, then there's kind of no reason to be there. Yeah, it's. Maybe not no reason. If you enjoy drafting or if you enjoy just being around a lot of people playing Magic and maybe you're new to the game and you just you don't mind those three round side events, it's not it's not the worst. But man, this is the first Grand Prix that I have been to that I had a negative experience from the get go. All of the other ones that I had been to, I thought, were staffed well. The vendors did a good job. It felt like there was some promotion behind the event to drive people there. And they really, really, really just did the bare minimum in Providence. Yeah, and I don't want to throw the vendors under the bus because I actually really enjoyed the vendors they had. They had like a TOA booth with like a... Caffrey and Ely were sort of joining forces there. Yeah, and Calvin. Yep, exactly. Yep, Calvin was there too. And uh, there was the Moose Loot booth, which was pretty typical, but they had like a full square. And then uh, Haruruya was there too. So for like my vetting needs, it was perfect. Uh, I really enjoyed that. But... Right, but when when you go to all of those booths at all of the other Grand Prix, they are eternal focused. They have their Eternal Foils, they have their Dual Lands, they have a selection of power. That's not the market for Grand Prix Providence. And none of the people who went there to get cards 
were really able to get what they needed. And that's a fucking travesty. Yeah, but, you know, vendors have to operate within their own self-interest, right? And if it's just not profitable for them to sell, you know, bring standard cards to a Grand Prix with 700 players, then, you know, maybe we can't expect that of them. You know, they're not, they're paying money to be there. They have to operate within what's best for them. Sure, and I'm not saying that Moose Loot and Tales of Adventure and uh, 95MTG owed it to the consumers to carry standard cards, but... If Channel Fireball can't get vendors that are going to sell what the players need, lower the booth fee. Yeah. Make sure that you, as Channel Fireball, have a stock of standard cards if you know that nobody's going to be able to bring standard cards. If you're going to be running all of the Grand Prix for North America and you can't take care of that, there's a problem, especially if you're fucking charging 70 bucks a pop. Yeah, and like... I miss the Star City two-day events, like the uh, Saturday Standard, Sunday Legacy Sunday events Legacy. that they used to have, yep. where, like, they were the big dog vendor, but you'd have, like, you know, your two to four other vendors there, and, but Star City, you know, they would always have standard cards, they always have legacy cards, you know, maybe they weren't the best price in the room, maybe they were, but they're reliable, right? And I feel like that was actually really good for the ecosystem, because... If you were going to travel like up and down the East Coast to go to one of these, you were going to play in both events. And it kept the Legacy players playing Standard, and it gave the Standard players something to, like, sort of a, a path. You know, like, I want to play in these Legacy events. And this is kind of a weird sidebar, but I feel like that was actually very good for the game, for the growth of the game from, like, 2013 to 2015. That sort of reliability that they had. And it felt like... This this event really I don't know man I, I I can't think of like a good word for it it just felt to me like going through the motions and sort of like something rotting from the inside I agree and maybe this isn't really a hot take but I feel like Star City and the Star City Games tournament series almost did more for the growth of the game at least the growth of the competitive game than Watsy has done. I feel like Watsy has shot themselves in the foot so many times and made so many subpar to poor decisions in their allocation of resources for marketing and expanding the tournament series that Star City absolutely crushed. And you you can take a look at stream numbers and Star City's beat Grand Prix. Always. It's a shame. Yeah, dude, I'm not going to argue with you at all. I've, I've felt that way since since Jump, really, since I started, you know, since I came back to the game. I found Star City right away, and, like, Cedric and Patrick, dude, that was, that was fucking heaven, just having them do Legacy every Saturday. That was, like, or every Sunday, I should say. That was amazing, man. That was That was truly something special. And something appealing to me, something that I watched and was like, man, I want to be there. I want to be a part of this. Versus a Grand Prix, I sort of watch those when I have to, you know. And I do feel like that there's a lot more to that relationship between Star City and Watsy. And this is not how we get a preview card, by the way. <laughs> but I feel like Watsy didn't necessarily respect all that Star City was doing. And I think that's why Star City eventually 
moved away from standard, which is what Watsi wanted them to be doing was more standard. And Star City was like, you know, well, give us this, give us that. And they, they gave them like, what, one Pro Tour invite for their Invitational Champion. And uh, I don't know, maybe four sets of of like the Moto Redemption things for their Invitational Champions. Not a lot, basically. They didn't give them very much. And Star City was just like, fine, well, we get better numbers doing Modern and Legacy and team events or whatever. We're just going to do what we want if you guys aren't going to recognize how much we're helping you guys out. Yeah, I'm not too worried about a preview card because even if we were <laughs> the the number one listened to Legacy podcast, we would just get a reprint. Oh, daggers. <laughs> Sorry, I guys. I think we got a ways to go before we were even the uh, number one listened to legacy podcast in our town. So You're absolutely right. But I predict <laughs> that we're probably not going to get a preview card even if we double our numbers. So we don't have to worry about that. So you want to move on to uh, your Grand Prix Richmond testing? Yeah. I uh, after After my experience in Providence, I have completely shifted my focus away from standard and onto legacy. And there are some trends that are really moving this week. I always try to follow what's going on in the meta online, and I played a lot more Magic Online this week than I uh, Legacy than I had leading up to it because I was foolishly trying to get ready for Providence. But Black Blue Shadow fucking crushed the challenge. Now I don't know what the original percent share of the meta game was. But if you scroll through the top 32 decks, it is a very, very, very high percentage of black-blue shadow decks. It really just dominated that tournament. I hadn't actually looked at these results, so that's surprising. It's not surprising to me that there were a lot of them, because every league I play these days, it feels like I'm playing one, if not two, blue-black shadow opponents. But that does surprise me that it did well, because... In my experience, I'm always beating them. So, I feel like a lot of people obviously saw the deck broke out at the Pro Tour and want to check to make sure it wasn't just a one-tournament pony, whether it was a perfect call for the Pro Tour metagame or whether or not the deck is as powerful as the Pro Tour showed it could be. And it, it really is. So... What I've been thinking about is how that sort of warps the metagame going into Richmond. And I'm in a few discords, and one fairly competitive discord actually got into a conversation about whether or not Burn is well-positioned now. A lot of people see that deck and they write it off as, oh, I would just never play this. But if you are trying to beat a meta of Death Shadow and Death and Taxes, then Burn seems fairly well positioned, doesn't it? I wouldn't think that Burn has a good Death and Taxes matchup, but I, I'm not sure about that. That's just my instinct because I always felt like I had a good matchup against Burn playing Stoneforge decks. I understand the difference between a mono white Stoneforge deck and a blue based Stoneforge deck could be the difference there. Is that what you think, that Burn has a good Death and Taxes matchup? Well, I think that you can make it have a good Death and Taxes matchup by playing 
as many as eight copies of Searing Blaze in Searing Blood. I I feel like the number of those cards that you have is extremely matchup changing when it comes to to fighting death and taxes. And Smash to Smithereens, I feel like, is maybe even more important in that matchup. Yeah, I mean, they they can't protect their batter skull because they, they don't have counter spells. They can't protect their vials either, yeah. And Mother of Runes is never going to live in that matchup. So you can 100% have a burn list that is very solid against those two and any three-color mana bases like Grixis Control. Price of Progress is still a house against the deck that is relying on three colors worth of dual lands. Yeah, so I guess you're just punting Sneak and Show then? Well, you get to play in Staring Bridge, which is what Burn used to do, and that potentially could give you enough time to make sure that you can get through that. Yeah, so that's really stretching, though, because if we're talking about having eight Searing effects plus Smash, plus Bridge, that's pretty much a whole sideboard right there, right? Well, I think you need to make the decision to play one of the Searing Effects main deck. Like four of? Yeah, like four Searing Blaze main deck, Searing Blood in the sideboard, Smashes, Blasts, maybe Pyrostatic Pillar, and Ensnaring Bridge in the sideboard. Man, so I feel like that's really kicking the creatureless matchups, like... You know, like your storms, like your your show and tell game ones, you're really in a tough spot. This is kind of always the problem with burn, right? Where I feel like it will never be extremely well positioned is you're always going to have to be forfeiting some matchups. But if you are predicting that not many people are going to bring show and tell because it gets bodied by Black Blue Shadow and Storm and or reanimator the same way because with the trends for what we're seeing with what people are playing online black blue shadow will be out in numbers if that holds down the combo players then burn can really do a number on those fair matchups if nobody's ready to play it yeah i kind of see where you're coming from now that's interesting so it 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 just turns out that one of those decks that a lot of people consider a budget choice and something that might not take a ton of skill to pilot or a deck that lends itself to newer players more could potentially be extremely well positioned for this tournament. Dude, so what if the the top three most played decks are Death Shadow, Death and Taxes, and Burn? Like what does that say about the reserve list? I can't I can't see Burn being the third most played deck. No, I know. It's just funny to think about. Yeah, uh, potentially what? In those three decks, the only reserve list card that would see play is Underground Sea as a two of in the Shadow deck. Sounds right. Yeah, you can you can play Legacy without the reserve list, for sure. It's it's more likely that you are leaning on a few a few cards though. Yeah, that's interesting. I uh I really haven't seen a lot of burn playing online, but you you make an interesting case, I guess, and I still don't know how it how it looks in the Delver matchups, which I have to feel like if you take decks with Delver but without Death Shadow, I feel like that's still going to outnumber decks with Delver and Death Shadow. I I don't I don't think I agree with you. Okay. I think for this tournament, 
that Death Shadow is going to outnumber regular Delver. I guess we'll see then. Yep. So even though you said that you weren't really seeing a ton of burn online, and I know we're talking about a very small sample size, but in the last two weeks, burn is 4% of the Winners Better game. What's that on, like, uh... Last, last two weeks on MTG Top 8. So that's, like, basically that a deck has 5 owed both weeks? Yes. And then one placing in the challenge. Yeah. So I guess that doesn't, that doesn't make a ton... How can I say this? We don't obviously have a ton of information, but it seems like Burn is overperforming from the amount that we see it being played. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, for sure. And I would say that, you know, 4% is definitely more than I would expect for Burn. So, yeah, maybe it is in a decent spot right now. All right. So other things that I've been thinking about leading up to Richmond... I've kind of like taken the whole legacy gauntlet and started to narrow down things that I'm really not willing to play so I can try to lock in my choice. I haven't locked it in yet, but it's it's a lot more trimmed down than it was last week. So I've ruled out quite a bit. I'm not going to play Eldrazi. I'm not going to play Loam. And I'm not going to play Steel Stoppy. I feel like those are not terrible decks. If you play one of those three, I'm not going to judge you or look down on you. But I think that the best Chalice deck is not one of those three, which I'll talk about a little bit later. I feel like Delver is back with a vengeance, specifically the black-blue shadow version. And given that, I really don't want to play Show and Tell in Richmond. Obviously, the deck is very powerful. But if the deck that is surging in metagame share leading up to the tournament is a deck that just absolutely bodies it, I don't want to bring that to the tournament. I also don't want to play Blood Moon, not for any reason other than that's just not a deck that I want to play. I don't think that I would enjoy not really having any control over my games rather than just jamming and hoping I don't play against Death and Taxes. All right, so all those are sort of out of the way for me. After talking and doing a little bit more testing, I don't really feel like I want to play Grixis Control either. I feel like that deck is really, it's too medium. It doesn't have a powerful enough proactive plan, and even though it has potentially some great matchups, I feel like most of the decks that are going to show up to the tournament are prepared to fight that. So that is probably the toughest cut that I've made so far. But I don't want to play a deck that doesn't really have a powerful or proactive plan. And I, I feel like Rixus is very, very, very medium. There are a few decks that I think that are powerful, but I'm not really willing to play. I am not the most experienced Miracles pilot. So I, even though I think that Snapcaster Mage Source to Plowshares definitely gets better going into Richmond, I would rather play another Snap Swords deck than Miracles. And I've narrowed out Storm because I don't have an, as much experience with that archetype as some of the others. I also don't think I would want to bring Turbo Depths, even though that deck is sort of making a comeback. 
I feel like death and taxes is still going to be a very significant portion of the field. I don't feel comfortable bringing depths to that. What do you think about all that? What percentage, if you had to put a percentage on Grixis versus Delver decks in general, what percentage would you put on it? Okay. Grixis non-Shadow Delver? No, I'm sorry. Grixis, like the mid-range Grixis decks right now, the Baleful Strix decks against the oh, Delver okay. decks. Like what the win rate is or what the percentage of the meta would be for each? Yeah, what the win rate, I guess, would be. Because one of the big draws to that deck, right, is people saying that it has like a good Delver matchup, right? That is one of the draws, right? Yeah, so what what percentage would you put on that? So I haven't tested the black-blue shadow matchup versus the Grixis control matchup. Like, I just, I haven't. But it seems from the Pro Tour that the black-blue shadow decks are fairly adaptable to be able to fight through the Grixis control matchup, right? Because, like, Grixis control was the most popular deck. Black Blue Shadow 100% was the best performing deck in that tournament. So even though you would think that it would be challenging to work your way through Strix plus double Fatal Push with Snapcaster Mage, right? It might not be what we expect. Yeah, so I was talking to some people about this this week, like this theory that, you know, Grixis mid-range is, is the deck that beats Delver the most reliably. I'm just not sure. My testing hasn't really backed that up since uh, Deathrite's left the metagame. I'm playing that a lot of times now from the Delver side and beating that deck and sort of like looking back at the matchups and just wondering really, you know, is it maybe 51, 55% against Delver? It doesn't seem like it's as big of a favorite as I think people might think it is, or it might looks on paper. It looks completely different on paper. And when I talked to Jono in Providence, he said, I can't believe that that many people brought that deck to the pro tour because it's so medium. And I think that people took a look at the deck list and just assumed that that is the shell to beat. Death and Taxes, and Delver. But I think I agree with you that the matchup is obviously a lot closer. And that that deck lost a little bit of respect in my mind, given how things have shifted. Yeah, definitely. And yeah, like I said, you know, just playing the matchup, maybe it does have a good Delver matchup, but I don't think that it has a great Delver matchup by any any stretch of the imagination. I would call it like, you know... Like I was saying, like a 51 or 55 or something like that. So really, what are you, what's your lunch then? Like storm decks and death and taxes maybe? And I don't feel like that's enough of a, of an edge. Now, I don't, I don't really think that storm is lunch. You don't have a clock, right? Yeah, that's a good point. The Delver deck's probably better than the storm deck too. I, I think that obviously you are probably good against death and taxes. I think that's agreed. But but you lack the clock that Delver has to play. I mean to play some grindy mid range cards 
where you're closer to 50% against everything, but you don't have that one matchup that you just eat. Yeah, I agree, man. I, I wouldn't want to be on that deck either. So what decks are you considering actually playing? Okay, so I have it broken down into like different different types of decks that I already feel comfortable playing. And once I figure out exactly what I want to be on by crossing some more things out, then I'm just going to grind a bunch online leading up to Richmond. So we have these sort of fair creature decks, and I haven't crossed out Death and Taxes, and I haven't crossed out Maverick. Of those two, I'm leaning towards Death and Taxes, but I haven't completely ruled out Maverick. I just, I don't like the fact that neither of those decks have Brainstorm, so I would feel much more comfortable playing the Death and Taxes side where you can actually have more mana denial than Maverick. And even though Maverick has Noble Hierarch, I'm leaning more toward Death and Taxes if I choose to play a deck like that. But I think if I'm going to play something like that, I'd rather just play straight Blue-White Stoneblade. There's more reactive cards that you can make sure that you can sideboard into against Delver. You have Snap Swords, you have True Name, and you don't really need to focus too much on the mana denial. If you feel like the field is going to be more fair, I feel like Blue-White Stoneblade has the tools to be able to compete in that matchup, and I already feel comfortable playing decks like that. So I talked earlier about how I don't really want to be on Miracles. I'm not the most experienced pilot. I understand how the deck works. I've played it a little bit, but I would much rather have Stoneforge Mystic. Yeah, I feel you. So if you were to play Death and Taxes, skipping back a second, yep. what what would your sort of uh what would your take on the deck right now be? Like what would your flex spots be? Have you given that any thought? Yeah, um two palace jailer for revoker. Yep. One hundred percent. Probably one Sanctum Prelate main deck. I'm not sure if I would run another one in the sideboard. Most likely, but I'm not hundred percent sold on that. I would 100% have a Manriki Gusari in the sideboard. I think that's something that you just need right now. And it gives you such an edge in the mirror that it's worth a sideboard slot. So that's just my sort of take on it. I am not a death and taxes expert. I have played the deck a lot, but I, I don't consider that to be my bread and butter. Yep. Okay. Yeah, I agree with you on that. So if you were to play a deck other than a Stoneforge Mystic deck, what else are you thinking? Okay, so obviously I've played a bunch of Delver, and Grixis and Black Blue Shadow are both on my list. Grixis, non-Shadow, and then the Black Blue Shadow deck. I kind of don't want to play Shadow, because I I really feel like there's going to be an uptick in Snap swords decks and i feel like the pro tour wasn't ready for shadow the online metagame is starting to see shadow surge and i feel like people are going to figure out that matchup and i'm not i'm not 100 percent sold on whether or not that's the deck to play but those plus the deck that you're going to talk about are the three delver decks that i still have on my radar yeah, I'm really surprised to hear you talking about Shadow. And, like, it makes sense. I didn't see the challenge results, but it makes sense what you're saying. 
you know, as far as what its matchups are, but you'd really feel comfortable bringing that deck, huh? Well, I mean, I, I 100% have not ruled it out. Obviously, that's a deck that is, it's new to its popularity level, so I would want to grind a bunch before I settled on it, but I haven't told myself there's no way that I'm going to play that deck. Have you played against it much online? Uh, I played against it a little bit, and I actually played the Grixis version, which I 100% didn't like. I 100%, if I am playing Shadow, I'm playing straight black-blue, because a three-color mana base in that deck is very, very challenging to work with. And I didn't like how the mana base was constructed with the Grixis version. Yeah, I feel you. So I've just played against a lot of blue-black decks online, and I don't know, maybe people are just sort of, sort of getting their first reps in with a deck or something, but it just hasn't seemed very powerful to me. Like, it, it seemed, uh, I don't know, a lot of the games are like, they're fetching, playing a threat. I can easily waste them out or, you know, have a good idea of what's in their hand, and they just, they don't have the threat density of the other decks. Where, especially if you're on a plow deck, you can just keep them off their threats pretty easily. I don't know, maybe that's just variance, you know? I'm only talking about maybe like a 10-match sample size right now. But the deck hasn't really impressed me. Well, Swords, Swords of Pasha's decks are obviously very good against that deck. But I think you're underestimating Reanimate as a threat target. And... I think that what you said earlier about people just getting used to playing Shadow is probably true. A lot of the people that you're seeing playing Shadow in leagues are probably playing it for the first, second, third time, just trying to either figure out whether or not whether or not it's what they want to play or practicing where you're probably not seeing it played at a high enough level to make that opinion. Yeah, I, I kind of have to make that assumption right now because it's just, it's been like, oh, yes, I'm playing Shadow, you know? Yep. So what uh what do you think about Black Red Reanimator? Okay, so I have three combo decks that I still haven't crossed off yet. Black Red Reanimator, Infect, and Elves. I, I feel comfortable playing all of those. I have played all of them online. I'm the least experienced with elves out of the three. But if we're looking at a black-blue shadow beating Grixis as the Delver deck, I feel like black-blue has a lot less tools to deal with elves than Grixis does. There's no more bolt. There's less removal main deck that matters against elves. And that could 100% be the best combo choice going into a metagame that has a high number of death and taxes. It definitely seems that way to me. I would agree with that. And I have seen the blue-black decks I've played against recently all seem to have been incorporating uh, Toxic Deluge. I don't know if it's like a one-of or a two-of in their sideboard, but that's still not a lot against elves, right? It, it is not, especially without any type of mana ramp to get there, a very explosive Elves draw can make that turn three Deluge kind of hard to deal with, especially if there's a value glimpse that 
that is somewhere in there. In fact, if we see a ticked down number of Grixis control decks, could still be the place to be. And it's undecided how much graveyard hate people are going to bring. And Black Red Reanimator is going to break out at some point. Whether or not it's Richmond, or whether or not it's Eternal Weekend, or whether or not it's a Star City, has yet to be seen. But that deck is really powerful, and I I haven't made the decision to put it down yet. So there's only one more deck that I am considering. Drumroll. It's what I think the best Chalice deck is right now. It's Fish. If we're going to be in a field that has a bunch of fair blue decks, Chalice Fish seems great. You have four True Name, you have Cavern of Souls, you have Chalice of the Void, you just have a bunch of dudes. And if there's one thing that Delver just doesn't do a very good job of, is beating Go Wide decks. And Merfolk is a big Go Wide deck. Yeah, I can see that being a very interesting meta call, and we've seen it perform well. I feel like when we've seen it show up, it's had some decent results in the last couple weeks, and it doesn't seem obvious to me like, uh, you know, some awful matchup for them. I completely agree with you. So, yeah, I think Merfolk, you know, it might be in a good spot. I don't have a ton of experience playing the deck. I don't know what the trickier sideboard cards like i know that there's like you know bounce merfolk and uh force spike merfolk and i don't actually know their real names but i know the deck can definitely be adjusted to your meta yep and i know that there's sort of like a tension between like uh what non-blue lands you'd want to play so are you on like uh wastelands if you play merfolk or are you on like caverns and mutavolts well so it's it's a balance between those three I think that if you are playing, uh, if I was going to play right now, I would want to be on Vault and Cavern. Obviously, there are some matchups where you want Wasteland more, but I feel like if you are on the Chalice build of Fish, which is what I would want to be on, Wasteland becomes less important. I... I don't feel like I would just want to play Wasteland in concession to the Depths matchup, because you can do some weird shit like Phantasmal Image, a Merit Lage, and, uh, and then just beat down with a true name. But I, I really feel like that deck could be a sneaky good choice if people aren't prepared for it. Yeah, I'm definitely inclined to agree with you. So Aether Vial is in the deck either way, right? Whether it's a Chalice deck or not. Yeah, I think the non-creature spells that you are playing are Vial, Chalice, Force. And that's it. No Daze? Well, I've seen some versions with Daze, but I feel like if you're if you're really that dialed in to a version that wants to go wide, you don't have enough spots to play Daze. So... I would I would start testing without. I would just start with four force, four vile, four chalice, and then dudes. Yeah, that makes sense, man. And I do think that that could be well positioned. Well, we have 
we have a little bit of time to see. Next week, there's an event at Gaming Etc. It's actually this Saturday that we have secured all of the deck lists for and the round-by-round round results. So I'm going to go straight A Beautiful Mind. <laughs> I'm going to go a straight Beautiful Mind and break down the win rates of all the decks that play and their matchups versus everything else. And I'll talk about that next week. And I 100% will have my deck locked in by the time we record next week, which will be released before Richmond. Dude, that's a that's pretty bold. I, I don't know if I would ever lock in a deck a week before a tournament. But we're we're recording Monday, right? Yeah. The Grand Prix is on Friday. Yeah. And I'm leaving Wednesday. So literally there's only one more day from the time we record to the time that I'm going to drive thirteen hours with a, my wife and a one year old to, <laughs> to to Richmond. Dude, I've never traveled to a Legacy Grand Prix with less than three decks. So, I don't know. Maybe that's just, like, my personal issue. Yep. But I always like to leave my options open. I have been locked in almost a month before to all of the other Grand Prix that I had been to. This is the only one that I have ever not been dialed in uh, at least a month before the Grand Prix. Interesting. Yep. So, yeah, unfortunately, I can't go to Richmond, which really sucks, but it's like the worst possible weekend of the year for me. Uh, it's just a confluence of events, my vacation, anniversary, fancy football drafts, etc. So it's just not a possibility. But actually, if I were going to Richmond, this would be the outlier for me where I actually would be locked on a deck. I've been playing that Noble Rug deck that we talked about last week. Yep. I've only played it in its final build through three leagues so far, but I've had such an amazing experience playing it. It just, it feels so smooth and it feels, you know, going back to the bands online, I played a lot of Infect and I felt like that deck got chased out of the meta by Baleful Strix. I played a lot of Maverick, which I felt was a reasonable choice, but nothing special. It was like a... about 50% very polar matchups. You know, I didn't feel like it was a great spot, but not a bad spot either. I played Bant, like, you know, kind of Bant-Maverick decks. Uh, felt a little bit better than Maverick because it was less polarized, but nothing exciting. Uh, Jun felt better than either of those, but ultimately this deck that we're playing now, this uh, this Noble Rug deck, it really feels like I found my spot now. Over these three leagues that I played in the final build, I went 11-4, and 11-2 uh, against decks that weren't lands. Uh, I split with Miracles, split with Tests, and I, I rolled off nine straight against Death and Taxes, Red Black, Eldrazi Post, a couple Death Shadow, a couple Grixis Controls, Grixis Delver, and Ant. And I really feel like, you know, the deck is, is just in a good place right now. And I don't know if you want to get into exactly how we built it, but... It's basically four nobles, four delvers, four true names, two hooting mandrels, and one young pyromancer, which sounds kind of weird to be playing one young pyromancer. But unfortunately, what I found when I tried to jam a second one in there, you know, the less spells you play, the less good pyromancer and delver, and even mandrels because of velocity are. 
and there's a tension there like you know you don't want to go overboard on the threats and yeah ultimately i feel like this is this is the right build for me and it could end up i will concede that it could be that three tarmogoyfs are correct with zero hooting mandrills and zero young pyromancers but what i was worried about were death and taxes decks and baleful strix decks where I really want Hooting Mandrills and Young Pyromancer rather than Tarmogoyf because Tarmogoyf can get bricked by a Mother of Runes where, you know, Young Pyromancer can go wide and Hooting Mandrills can trample over. And with Baleful Strix, yeah, running a Hooting Mandrills into a Strix doesn't feel great, but it's better than running a Tarmogoyf into a Strix, right? Because at least you get like a Lava Spike out of it. Sure. Now, it's something. In the build that I was playing, I dropped Mandrills completely. Oh, boo. And I was just I was just playing Pyromancer with a higher spell count. So I I did not respect Mandrills and I'm not sure if I would play that going forward. I had a pretty good experience playing it too. I lost to lands, I stole the game one, and because of my budget on mana traders, I built a version that didn't have double surgical. Oh, no. So I lost both sideboard games to lands. But the deck felt great. I ended up beating TES. I, it felt good. I beat Eldrazi, where I went turn one Noble Hierarch, turn two True Name, turn three True Name. And it felt so good. Oh, yeah. They had a Chalice on one that they played after my Hierarch, and it just really didn't matter much. The deck was great against Combo. It was solid against other Delver decks. Being able to play four true name is really the absolute truth. And instead of playing Mandrills in response to Strix and Mother of Runes, I just played the Pyromancers to go wide. So I think that if I was going to play another league with it, I would have a basic island and I would play one more land. I feel like that is a place where I would I would feel comfortable going with it. And all of these true name decks that, that we've been talking about, I really wanted to find a place for Umazawa's Jite. And I'm not sure if this is the deck for it, but I want to explore that too. Yeah, the thing that's kept me from putting a JIT in the sideboard, because we talked about this, and I was totally on board. I was like, yeah, JIT sounds great. But actually, I found that like the most important cyborg card so far for me has been Null Rod. I've absolutely loved Null Rod against... I'm seeing like one to two Storm decks every league I play, whether it's Ant or Tess or this last league I played against Belcher. I'm just constantly seeing Storm decks. And then there's the omnipresent Death and Taxes, right? And Null Rod is like, you know, how many cyborg cards do you have that are bullets in both matchups, Death and Taxes and Storm, right? There's so few. And Null Rod's like the perfect card for that. And that kind of makes me not want to play a JIT because I would want JIT most against like uh, your your creature decks, like your Death and Taxes, right? And I don't want that anti-synergy. So I haven't considered Null Rod, but there is a card in my sideboard, the Sulfuric Vortex, which I was actually going to ask you about. I had originally copied Jacob Wilson's sideboard from Pro Tour 25. Mm -hmm. And 
pretty quickly made a couple adjustments to it. I think he correctly called the metagame for that and, and really didn't have a sideboard geared towards beating spell-based combo decks. But that's obviously something that I think needs to be adjusted now. Mm-hmm. So I, I cut his gut shot for Dismember. I cut his submerge because I'm just not seeing many green decks. So I cut his submerge for another Abrade. And I cut a Graftigger's Cage for that Null Rod. But that Sulfuric Vortex, what is really, what are the matchups for that card? Well, I feel like number one is probably Miracles. Just a hard-to-answer threat that makes it so that if the game goes long, that you are favored. I'm not sure if I'm really willing to bring that in in a ton of other matchups. But it's also probably pretty good against non-Death and Taxes Batterskull decks, right? So like a blue-white a blue white Stone Blade or other decks like that. Yeah, that's what I'm trying to figure out right now. And it could be that I just haven't played against the good matchups for the card. But I'm really tempted to cut it right now. And I'm trying to figure out if that's a mistake or not, basically. You're using the sideboard of a regular Rug Delver deck. And they probably need additional reach versus those decks. But if you're jamming for True Name, I feel like a True Name Nemesis and a Sulfuric Vortex almost are replaceable. Exactly. So I, I feel like of the sideboard that you were working with, that is probably what I would feel like is most easily cut. How would you describe how Noble Hierarch has performed in your testing? Noble Hierarch, I, I think that what you said that, um, who was it, Lucas Esper Berteau said? Yep. That the primary use of death rate was as a mana dork a lot of the times. That seems so true to me. Like being able to go trop into Hierarch on turn one, you're, you, a lot of times you're keeping these hands that are like fetch land, wasteland, cantrip, cantrip, threat, counterspell, where if you play a Delver turn one, and then they waste you. Like, that's not typically considered a good line because you're wasting someone who has board presence on you. But it's what a lot of people end up doing just because they don't want to play into a daze, like trying to remove your Delver. And there's the chance that you miss your next land drop, right? And a lot of times you do end up missing your next land drop. But Hierarch gives you insulation against that because, like, you can still fire off a cantrip, find a colored source, and then just be off to the races in that game. You also gain some equity in people not putting you on the deck that you're playing. I mean, what does Trop Hierarch usually mean? It used to mean ban. Now it means Infect. And obviously Delver is similar to Infect. But you have four completely protected three drops that you can ramp into that somebody who is making decisions against an infect deck is going to get housed by a true name absolutely and that's a great point and also when you were talking so this deck hierarch really makes you want to go tall rather than wide right and that's another one of the awkward things about young pyromancer because your other threats your delvers your true names and your mandrels they're totally fine attacking alone and a lot of times you get into like these these race situations where you have like a true name back on defense and one true name cracking in for four or five, which is just amazing. And I've also found with mandrels, like obviously the concern playing the card is 
Gurmag anglers, right? Opposing anglers because you're playing a 4-4 against a 5-5. But I'm honestly finding that most of the time my mandrels is attacking, it's attacking as a 5-5. So that has been like a huge, a huge boost for me. It's kind of awkward in the, uh, in the combo matchups, like against Storm decks, because you have more cards that you want to take out than bring in, right? Because you have Nobles, you have True Names, and you have Bolts. And you don't want to be running four of those into the post-game matchups. But you only have like seven or eight cards that you can justify bringing in. Yeah, now I feel like Noble isn't the worst. Because if you are on the play in game two, you you have access to Force and Daze. And untapping with a mana advantage on your turn two is great. Another reason why I sort of favored Young Pyromancer is since you are playing Hierarch, you get to play that turn two pyro plus cantrip game that Grixis Delver used to be able to. And having that three mana on turn two really makes Pyromancer a better threat in my mind than Mandrills. Because you, yeah. you already have enough go tall threats in Delver and True Name that I wanted to diversify the threat base to be able to go wide. Yeah, and I see where you're going with that. Honestly, I've thought about a Pyromancer in the board, too, because it's the threat that you want against these spell-based decks where you can just sort of set it and forget it, right? Like you play one out, and then you daze something, or you pierce something, or whatever, and you're just slowly building up your threats. It's kind of like deploying a Delver on turn one, right? For this minimal mana investment, you get to end up with this extreme clock that can end the game in like three or four turns. And it's much better than true name in those matchups. So I've considered it, and I've thought a lot about, like, uh, I played through one league with two young pyromancers, three true names, and two mandrills. But ultimately, I think true name is just the best thing about this deck, so I don't think that's the way to go. It could be that two pyromancers and then, like, a tarmogoyf or one hooting mandrills is the correct build. I don't know. I'm going to keep testing it this week. I think that on Saturday, uh, one of my 5-0s should be published for this deck. And we'll see if I'm 10 cards different, maybe another one. Yeah, I will. I promise not to 5-0. I will 4-0 drop. If, oh, I, dude. if I, I don't want to steal your thunder. Dude, it seems like your build's probably already 10 cards off for mine, because you don't like Mandrills. You're playing like six Pyromancers or whatever. You're not playing <laughs> Surgicals. Well, I'm playing one Surgical. So the differences, <laughs> the differences that I have in my list are main deck, I don't have Mandrills. I have a Cantrip and another Pyromancer. And in the sideboard, I'm too broke to have a second Surgical. So we are we are about five cards off. I don't know what fetch lands you're playing, though. So. Oh, you are absolutely right. Maybe we can both do it. Let's yeah, just, man. Let, let's do it. Let's we'll get there. Draft, we'll draft the fetch lands so <laughs> we can... So we can both make it. I'll tell you right now, I'm playing four wooded foothills, so. Okay, I'm not. So we're good. We're good. Bingo. Awesome, man. So do we have anything else we want to talk about tonight? Ah, standard sucks. Yeah, we've already trashed Channel Fireball. We've trashed Wizards of the Coast. We've trashed Standard. I don't think I've talked enough about old school, so we'll have to save that for another episode. But, dude, owning Moxon, when you, when you had your power... Did you used to just carry it around with you? No. I used to have to hide it from my wife. So I I put a safe 
to be able to store like a fireproof like gun safe that I got to be able to um to store my cards that I felt like I couldn't afford to lose. And any time I took those cards out, like to get ready for Eternal Weekend, or just to look at and feel happy that I owned my set of power, my wife would come walking by and be like, "You know that's a house, right? You, <laughs> you know, you know you have a kid, right? You know." And I'm like, oh. "Like, she's absolutely right." But that's the reason that I sold my power after the spike. Like, I am. I do not predict that power is going to start to drop in value. I do not think the bottom is going to fall out of the market, but I felt like I was in a spot where I didn't want to take any chances when it came to it. And when it comes to paying for my kid's college and being able to afford double the down payment that I I had saved to buy a house in a nicer area for my kid, I couldn't justify owning that amount of money in cards and sacrificing those things. Yeah, that's totally understandable. It 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 makes me it makes me fucking sad. But no more no more power for me. Dude, it's crazy. I'm I'm just walking around my house the past two days, just constantly just shuffling my pearl and emerald like i i never i don't know those are two cards i never owned when i was a kid like i had ruby i had jet but i don't know man like i just can't let go of these freaking cards i just keep staring at them they're just uh i don't know man aesthetically pleasing or i don't know what it is but i'm I'm shuffling them right now i just can't put them down i took them to work with me today when i got my lotus i was afraid I was like, I was holding it in my hand and looking at it, being like, I fucking made it. And I double-sleeved it, and I put it in the safe inside of a hard case, and it only came out of the safe twice. It was Eternal Eternal Weekend and a vintage tournament at gaming, etc. They actually didn't know they did proxied vintage. Yep. So I brought all my fucking power, and I was like, I'm ready to go. And then in round one, I play against somebody who's playing proxies, and I'm like, I should have fucking left this in my safe. <laughs> but I was I was afraid, man. So, wow. oh, man, to see the prices that people are paying for those cards now, this is going to allow my kid to live in a nicer area because of me buying these fucking pieces of cardboard that are used for a game that's fucking crazy it is man it really is and i've been walking around with this pearl and my wife saw it and i still had the price tag on it and she was like i swear to god if you paid that much money for a piece of cardboard with a light bulb drawn on it which the the pearl does kind of look like a light bulb now that I'm looking at it, you know, she, she just doesn't understand. And I guess it's not normal to understand that, right? It, it's totally irrational, the prices of these cards at this point. But I, I convinced her that I'd actually sold a bunch of cards for it. And she's like, so did you get a blue Lotus? And I was like, oh. <laughs> it's a, it's a black. Lo-. But then like I stopped and I was like, wait a second. It's a blue hurricane. It's fucking, it's, it is blue though. Like if you think about the card. Yep. 
it's fucking blue. Like, she's not wrong. You are absolutely right. I think we're we're about done here. If you're looking for me, you could probably find me on Twitter at Ian18125. You can find me at TSmileyMTG, the cast at Dead Format Cast, and you can email the cast at deadformatcast at gmail.com.